Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Renton. Welcome to Sunday School. Adult Sunday School, Sabbath School, whatever you want to call it. Um, today, we are going to be talking about Christ, the covenant. Um, we're going to try and make sense of that phrase uh, today. It's going to be kind of exciting. Well, it is for me, so I hope it is for you. I'll try and share my enthusiasm with you. I know it's the morning, so we'll try and deal with that. Uh, pray for my wife. Uh, Livy was kind enough to share her sickness with her, and uh, must have been bad. We all got flu shots, so at least we didn't get whatever that was going to be. We just got the other thing. I guess flu shot can only save you from one illness at a time. All right. Well, anywho, uh, let's have a word of prayer. And uh, let's get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can be here this morning uh, to gather together to worship you and um, to honor you. We thank you that you have given us that honor to do that. We pray for uh, wisdom, even during this hour as we try to contemplate your Son. We pray for the Spirit's work in us, that our hearts would bow before your word. Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Okay. Uh, many years ago, it's becoming more and more, you realize how old you're getting when things that seem not too long ago are in the double digits. Uh, but there was a time where I was working on a degree in philosophy, and I remember being encouraged that one of my professors uh, claimed to be a Christian. But man, you have to be... In the, in the world of philosophy, uh, you can't make it in the secular world if you're an actual Christian. Uh, and be like a professor and all that sort of thing. Um, I guess I did it for a while, but it was community college and no one cared about that. So, um, But on this level, uh, this man was claiming that you know he was a Christian, so he understood all this stuff, uh, the way Christians think. And, um, so one day we're learning about this idea. Uh, there's this guy, long, long time ago, named Plato, and um, through, uh, his, through his teacher, Socrates, he came up with this question. And the question is, and this, I'm trying to paraphrase this as best I can so everyone understands it. The question is, does God look out at the world and says, okay, from what I can tell of how the world works... These are things you ought to do. So I've looked out in the world, and I've noticed that when people murder, things don't go well. So therefore, don't murder. And I've also noticed that when people covet, uh, things don't work out well. So therefore, don't covet. Is that what's going on? Or uh, is God making up these rules and then saying, don't covet? Making everyone, of course, want to covet. So that's the question. What kind of a God do we serve? We serve a God that uh, is telling us the rules from himself, or is he just noticing how things work and then therefore telling us the rules based on the way things work? Uh, so uh, what do you think the professor came up with? Second. Yeah. The, uh, the second Okay, well, the, the professor came up with the idea that God is 
Plato's God. God looks out in the world, sees how things work, and then tells us, okay, don't murder. Because God is under the rule of reason and the way the world works. When I raised my hand, I thought, you know, surely you can't really think that way. Um, I don't even think I was really a Christian at that point, but I thought that doesn't seem logical that you have a God that has to serve logic, especially the bizarre way humans think in logical terms. And I said, wouldn't he be more of a God if the rules came straight from him instead of him just noticing the utilitarian way things work? And he said, well, that would make God's rules arbitrary. He's just making stuff up and then telling us to live that way. Um, I'm bringing all that up because what never occurred to this man is that God is not Aristotle. God is not Plato. Um, That our world is not this world that the philosophers told us about. Reality doesn't work the way philosophers have told us that reality works. We keep thinking that reality is this thing that works in this logical mode, and if it doesn't seem logical, then uh, we have to put a ton of questions to it, because this is the way the world is. And what seems very strange to us is the idea that the world works in a covenantal way as opposed to some kind of weird philosophical, logical way. Um, It is why uh, a lot of the Bible seems strange to us, because we think, well, John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? And then in the same book it goes on to say that the Father... Tells you who the whosoever is. Well, that's strange. Because we still think that we're living in a reality of logic. Does that make sense? So we see all these things that don't seem to make sense to us. So what I'm trying to get across here, when we start talking about uh, Christ the Covenant... We're not talking about a philosophical world. Talking about a covenantal one that God created. So, uh, let me ask you this. Um, When you think of reality, okay, you have to think of everything that's in the world that you come into contact with, right? Uh, Animals, plants, the ground, the sky... All that stuff. Then you think of other human beings that you come into contact with, right? And you think of your God that you come into contact with. I don't know if there's anything else that reality can be composed of. Do you? Because if you do, um, you'll be breaking ground in the philosophical world. They would want to hear what you have to say. Uh, Okay. Have, it, have you considered this idea? That everything I just described to you come into for, comes in the form of uh, commands. For instance, if you look at Genesis 1, 28. We hear what ha, uh, how God is speaking of 
how humans interact with the world. This is how you're supposed to interact. God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve. This is before sin, uh, before sin entered into the world, people. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. And speaking of the earth, I want you to subdue it. Rule over it. So you're going to be ruling over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And how are you supposed to rule over these things that move over the earth other than subduing not just them, but the earth itself so that you can uh, subdue them and rule over them? So you have a command. And what's another command? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you're supposed to deal with other humans. How are you supposed to deal with God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I'm dealing with commands. Right? And why do I bring all these things up to you? Because what we find is these commands are commands that are tied to covenantal relationship. Okay? They're not arbitrary commands that God decided, you know what, in this world I think I'm going to have humans love each other. Yep, and uh, oh, and I think I'll have them love me. And what's another thing I can make up? Uh, how about I want them to rule over the earth? I don't know why, but I'll just do it. <laughs> um, is that the way things are going? Uh, I guess, if, uh, if we want to believe Plato. Um, but if we, if we dump philosophy for a minute and we think about the Bible instead, we might think this way. That every relation you have to the world, to other people, and to God are all intertwined into covenant. Intertwined into covenant. That God made a covenant reality in which everything has to do with that idea. And so what is a covenant? <laughs> yes, ma'am. <clears throat> Okay. The definition of a covenant is a relationship that God establishes and guarantees by his word that came flesh. Jesus, he guarantees it by Jesus. Okay, yeah, there's these, um, there's these commands, there's these agreements and guarantees, even guarantees, <laughs> but they might even be based on agreements of behavior, Right? Uh, when Adam was told not to eat of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was that just some weird thing? You know, just God had this thing about this tree. I don't know why. <laughs> or is this a covenantal uh, command with covenantal uh, agreements, with covenantal guarantees? Eat of it and die. Obey and live. Right? What we find is almost every single interaction we have in this world seems to be based on these kind of agreements. Um, even, even down to small little things. When someone tells a story, there's small little agreements that are starting to be made. Promises of a plot, promises of a point. To the story, isn't that why we get so disappointed when a story doesn't have a point? <laughs> or the plot is disappointing 
right? I mean, you know, when you read a, read a contract and you'll understand the language in that contract is, is behavior oriented. Yes. Everything about a contract is written for the purpose of two, two, two parties coming together with agreements of how they will behave within that contract. Yes. And the covenant and contract are, are almost identical in some ways. Yeah, so exactly. So even today, even as we make agreements with each other, you know, if, if you're one of those people that still use cable... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I know that everything's, uh, what do you call it, apps now. Everyone uses apps, but some people are still using cable. And if you have a cable bill, the bill comes, and you say, okay, these are the agreements. If I stop paying the cable bill, I will stop getting cable. Okay, so there's all these different uh, things within our lives that we act this way. If we all acted uh, in logical terms, purely logical terms, we'd be a bunch of robots and wouldn't even understand... Uh, how the world works. So I bring all this up to turn us to Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 12. Romans 5, 12. I want to get us out of, um, into a mindset that might be a little different for Americans. Right? Uh, Americans live in a very covenantal way. They just never acknowledge it. They think only in terms of philosophical logic. Um, but we do. I mean, we have a house of representatives. Someone is representing you. This is a covenantal way of living, right? Um, our children embarrass us. Why? Because they're representing us. This is covenantal living, right? Um, sometimes we're proud of them. Why are we proud? Why is it that when our children do something right, we don't go, well, that's their life? I don't know. <laughs> because we live in a covenantal way, whether we admit to it or not. Um, and so um, all this is to get our mindset into a reality that is spoken of in Scripture, that because Christianity has swallowed so much philosophy, we don't even know how much we've swallowed. Uh, we don't even... We don't even know the bad habits our thinking has already taken. And so I'm trying to get us get our thinking back into a way that really makes a lot more uh, sense, even to our own experience, which is a covenantal reality. So we have this set up in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, of how it is that this whole relation, this whole idea all throughout scripture, this basic story that, I, that we have of creation, a fall, and how God is going to redeem those people that have fallen. Creation, fall, redemption, paradigm, that is all throughout scripture. In fact, every story in the Old Testament has something to do with People uh, starting out, doing well, people falling, and how that redemption uh, occurs. Even Joseph himself, who through good planning, uh, in a way, saves Israel, right? So that they can eat, not die. Okay, so. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. 
Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by that by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of one... Death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Let's just hold it there for a minute. All right. Does it seem like there's both a comparison and contrast going on? Comparison, noticing similarities contrast, noticing differences. So we need to figure out what the similarities are and what the difference is. Okay. So what do we know about how sin entered into the world? This kind of talk. How did sin enter into the world? I know it sounds like an obvious question, but I just want you to think about it. Uh, how did that happen? What, what occurred? What was that? Temptation occurred. Mm-hmm. Temptation. Okay, temptation. And what was the result of that temptation? Okay. What did Adam do? Because we keep blaming Adam in this. Uh, what did he do? What was that? Okay. He sinned. By doing what? Eating other fruit. What was that? Not protecting. Okay, didn't protect his wife. He didn't contradict Eve. Right. <laughs> he did not contradict Eve. More importantly, he didn't obey God. Yes, he didn't obey. He broke the law. Yeah. Um, on, our first, on our first two blanks there, we're saying sin entered in the world by way of covenant breaking. Covenant breaking. I want, uh, once you write that down, I want you to think about something. It's covenant breaking, but it isn't running away from the idea of covenant. It's not that he said, I reject the reality of covenant. He broke covenant because he thought, right? What's the temptation that that Satan was giving giving Eve? That you'll be wiser. Yeah. Did God have a plan for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yes. God have a plan as to how it is that Adam was going to understand his world. Absolutely. 
But what was what uh, Satan was trying to do is he was trying to say, look, God is making all these demands, but you can get there in a different way. You can be covenant head. Don't let God be in charge. Don't let God set all the rules to your covenant. You make your own covenant. You make your own arrangements. In order to do that, you have to break covenant with the one who already made the agreements. Right? So he breaks covenant. If we don't understand that the sin that Adam committed was a covenant breaking, we run into a lot of theological problems. Okay? <laughs> it was one of the things when, you know, how does a Reformed Presbyterian person go and start working for Bob Jones University Press? Right? And I don't know if you, maybe some of you don't know much about Bob Jones, but um, Bob Jones University is, you know, a dispensational school. Um, and one of the things that was very important to me when going to the press was that they viewed Adam's sin as covenant breaking. <clears throat> And which they do. They hold it into their white paper, which makes them very different than the university. Uh, white paper just means what they go by. is what the whole company goes by. Um, and so we call the sin that Adam committed covenant breaking. It was a covenant. Um, why is that so important? Because if you don't understand that that's a covenant breaking activity, then how do you explain how it is that we are responsible not just in theory, Right. Uh, the danger comes if you start living in a philosophical world. How is it possible that I am actually responsible for Adam's sin? It seems theoretical in a philosophical world. That's why even uh, Jonathan Edwards' son uh, jumped on board with the idea that maybe we're not really responsible, only theoretically responsible. In one generation, uh, problems started occurring. In a, and I don't think it's a by accident that it happens in America, a place where individualism is so important. But this is the idea. Adam was the covenant head over all his kind. Right? Over his kind. God was the covenant head in that he was the one who initiated and made the rules of and governs the covenant, the covenant. But Adam was head in that he represented us. And Americans, it's hard for them to understand what that means because we send people to, to D.C. all the time that kind of represent us but maybe really don't, right? I mean, imagine how a Christian feels living in California where they have all these people representing them that I don't think represents the Christians. <laughs> I'm sure there's, you know, I don't know how you feel about politics. I don't have a very good outlook. But uh, maybe you have more hopeful outlooks than I do. Um, and so, um, so we kind of look at representation as a kind of a loosey-goosey idea, right? In theory, they represent us. Sometimes they do things that we don't like. And they're not representing us, but sometimes they do things we do like, and we go, oh, that represents me. But it's really they're just representing whatever keeps them in power sometimes, if you have a negative view of this. Yes, sir. So, you know, as Americans, we operate within a mindset of a bilateral covenant. 
Mm. It's two parties entering into an agreement. Yeah. But the creator of an object or a people or a class of individuals, that operates by a single covenant, mm -hmm. head, head down. Yeah, so... So we're not used to that concept. Many people right. aren't. We're used to the idea, I think what, what you're saying, we're used to the idea of kind of covenants between peers, right? And it's a very different thing when you have covenant between created and creator, right? And that becomes almost a completely different thing because the creator is presenting and um, putting people almost, it seems, right? Because with Abraham, he says... This is what's going to happen. I'm going to make a people for you through your seed. And through you, all the families will be blessed. Doesn't sound like Adam saying, or Abraham saying, oh, can I think about that for a minute? Let me just mull around. I'll give you my answer tomorrow. <laughs> Nothing like that happens. But what we find is part of covenant breaking is also believing that the covenant is not a blessing. Yeah. I mean, that's part of Satan's work, isn't it? This covenant God made, that's not really a blessing. What would be a blessing is if you did it your way, right? That's the blessing. He's trying to hold back. That tree is something God's holding back from you. That covenant is pure curse and not blessing at all, right? Um, and so... Adam as the head represents mankind in a real way, not in a theoretical way. This representation is, the next blank is there, is the natural state of reality. It is not an unusual situation. It is a very natural state of reality. Where one truly represents another. Um... Which is hard for us uh, thinking in an individualistic way, right? Where we think, um, how is it possible that I can be truly uh, related to something someone else did before I was even born? But that infection is not, let me put it this way, one view of how sin ent uh, contaminates us this view that it was through the curse of the flesh and the stuff of the world. So uh, Adam brought this curse onto his flesh. So as he has children and more children have children, sin is spread out through uh, actual physical flesh. Right? Um, is there corruption to the flesh? Absolutely. But is that how sin comes through? Right? Well, the Gnostics got a hold of that and believed, well, then anything in flesh would have to be evil, right? That's why they can't believe that Jesus himself could not have taken on flesh because flesh is evil. It runs into a lot of problems. The minute you stop understanding the world around you as a covenantal world, Scripture begins to become problematic because you've stopped believing in the way God made the world. Um, it is why... Most of my students, when I taught philosophy, had such a hard time understanding the Bible. Um, they were so steeped into a philosophical viewpoint that they didn't even understand. I mean, it's incredible how 
uh, you have these students that are so sure about their view of God because they've already accomplished two whole years in college. And, uh, and they, they come before you acting like you're an idiot for thinking the Bible's true. I got all these answers because I'm a whole 19. And you think, okay, I mean, maybe, maybe the degrees I got have no meaning, but have you thought that maybe you haven't thought the whole thing through? Um, that there's a reason why every philosopher, every philosopher that has rejected God comes to the same conclusion exact same conclusion, that none of this has any meaning. None of it. The only way you can get to meaning if you try and create some kind of God like Immanuel Kant tried to do, and it was never successful. You cannot believe that anything has meaning if you really take it to the last nth degree, which I try to tell the students. Say, this whole conversation is a waste of time. Why are you trying? I mean, if nothing means anything, why convince me that that you're right. I mean, you know, just let me live in my ignorance and be happy till I die, since it doesn't matter. But that's the problem. They're covenant people, covenant beings trying to live like they're living in some philosophical, logical world. It's unnatural. So they have to take on these ideas that, yes, nothing means anything, but they, because they're covenant beings, they're always pushing for meaning. <laughs> they can't help it, because this is who they really are. You can't deny what you are. If you're a covenant being, you're going to be searching for that meaning. Searching for that meaning. These same kids that say, I don't believe anything means anything, but they're searching for pleasure, aren't they? Looking for the boyfriend or the girlfriend that's going to do it for them, or the friend, or whatever it is. They're searching, searching, searching. Because they're covenant beings, not Aristotelian beings. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, death. Spread to all because all sinned in Adam. Okay, if we look at this verse, in verse, uh, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. How is it possible that I sinned? Because he's still talking about Adam's sin. You sinned through Adam. You're like, well, that doesn't make any huh? How is that possible? Because this is the reality we live in. You've been lied to that there's some kind of strong individualism in this world where God is weighing, you know, well, this guy wasn't too bad. Adam was bad, but this guy wasn't too bad. Look, it even talks about it later on. Um, it says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. How is that possible? How is David in the Old Testament saying from, from as an infant, he was already, he was conceived in sin? Because we live in a covenantal reality where this representation is real. Because I'm telling you this, this is one of the conclusions we have to get to as if we get through all these things as fast as we can. Um, Adam's um, how you have been represented is just as important through Adam as it is through Christ. Let me show you. Um, the penalty is as real as the sin. Right? What's the penalty? Death. Does anyone deny that death is super real? 
No one's denying that. It is the, it is the catalyst for every philosophical thought, um, every fear that pushes those philosophical thoughts. Death is so real, we, uh, none of us can deny it. But we're still debating over whether the sin through Adam is real. Um, there is a one-to-one relation being made here. The penalty is as real as the sin that you committed through Adam. Adam is, and it goes on in verse, uh, um, verse, where is it? Don't lose that. Got to find that. That's pretty important. Where is it? Um, Verse 14. Nevertheless, uh, like I said before, likeness of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come? So we have, um, there are some that did not sin in the offense of of the same kind of sin as Adam, but they're still dying because of it. And who is this Adam? Adam is the one who is a type of him who was to come. What does that mean? What's a type? Um, Well, for the sake of time, let me tell you. Um, This type, this idea here, um, is not kind of the type that we talk about sometimes in the Old Testament, that Joseph was a type of Christ because he saved his people and all that sort of thing. Um, This has the idea of pattern. Adam is the pattern of the one who is to come. What kind of pattern are we talking about? We're talking about a covenantal pattern. Adam's covenantal work, right, of covenant breaking and us being affected by it is a similar pattern that you will see of the one to come. Who's the one to come? Christ. So we're going to see another covenantal pattern. And what we're going to see is this covenantal pattern is even better than Adam. Because in this pattern, in this covenant, uh, people are restored to life. Death is easy. Um, What we find, I mean, have you noticed that destruction seems a lot easier than building? Right? This is a covenantal idea. Do you understand how easy it is for a disease to spread and how hard it is to stop it and to find a cure. That is the hard work, right? That takes a different kind of work than the spreading of a disease. Spreading seems easy. This is, this is the same idea that's happening, right? Um, so Adam is the type or pattern of Christ. This pattern is covenantal. This covenantal pattern between Adam and Christ is not identical. Okay? So the similarity is that we have covenant uh, work going on. What's different is one is better than the other. Right? Adam's covenant breaking is degeneration, sin and death. Christ's covenant keeping, I'm sorry, Adam's covenant breaking is degeneration. It's sin and death. Christ's covenant keeping is resurrection. It's righteousness and life. That is not an equal thing. So when we have Adam, who is on probation for the sake of all mankind, is not the same as God coming down 
and emptying himself through addition, right? By adding to himself flesh. That is not the same. You have two covenants going on, but one is way better than the other. One is more... Um, how do I put it? Glorious. You have God humbling himself for the sake of people that do not deserve it. God did not look over the earth and say, there's some people that still deserve my blessing. So you're saying that it's not like what I've heard before. It's like the yin and yang kind of thing. Like there has to be both and they're equal in their, um, they're equal in their power. Right. They are not equal in their power. That is correct. That's a good good point. Exactly. It's not like, uh, well, Adam messed up, so let me give an equal thing so that we can try this all again. To balance, you're saying. Yeah. It's not balanced at all. So you have something quite gracious. God creates man and says, obey and live. Disobey and die. It's very gracious. Adam sins. And what God could have done with full justice is say, then let you all rot. And it would have been fine. Do you understand? God did not come down because he was obligated to do so. That's what makes this gift so incredible to us. He could have said, just rot. And your rotting will still bring me glory. Because my justice is being poured out on all of you that deserve it. But he said, instead, on a group of people that I choose, I will come down there and put on the flesh. And I will be a covenant for you. So Christ's covenantal work uh, is not... uh, not only justifies, it makes death a gain. So it even rearranges what death is for us. What does Paul say in Philippians 1.21? Death is a gain. We don't need to be afraid of it. Because the new covenant has made it something as a means to God. What was that? Yes, through Christ. That's covenant relation. This throughness that we're talking about. Christ's redemptive work is covenantal, but uh, we also have to remember that his person is the perfect covenant shown in his two natures. Remember we talked about that last week. His work is covenantal work. This redemptive work is covenantal work, but we have to remember, even in his person, he becomes the perfect covenant because he is fully man, fully God. He's not half man and half God. He's not God pretending to be man. He's fully man and fully God, which makes him, even in his person, because of his two natures, the perfect covenant for us. And so what does this mean? So what? What does this have to do with anything? 
what we're talking about when we're talking about this covenantal work of God, we're talking about this union we have with Christ. Your salvation. Is salvation only in union with Christ? Christ, as the covenant head, is the one who is the benefactor, right, of the benefits. Um, We don't preach, uh, come, uh, get saved and your life will be better. Get saved so that you can get to heaven. Get saved so that you won't feel guilty for your sin. All of that are, are benefits. That doesn't mean anything if you don't have the benefactor. Your covenant union with Christ is why you are justified, sanctified, adopted, and glorified. And that has to be absolutely real. It is not figurative speech. It is not theoretical. It is not, well, in a way, we're just kind of tied to Christ, just kind of how I feel. Certainly is not tied to your feelings. It is tied to something much more real than those things. It is tied to that actual covenantal relation you have with Christ. A union that is better than Adam because, on your next blank there, Christ's covenantal union with us can never be undone. Your union with Adam is undone. Your union with Christ is never undone. The first one there, sorry, I think I skipped that. Christ's covenantal union with us is just as real as the life we are given. That comparison we make with Adam. How real is the sin I sinned with Adam? It's as real as death. So how real is this union I have with Christ if I am covenantally unified with Christ in salvation It's as real as the life I have in him. It's why Paul is always surprised when there is a church that is acting like unsaved people. Because he says, don't you realize you have real life in you? This is insane. Don't you understand? How can you be annoyed or hate each other or treat each other unjustly? That's crazy. You have real life in you. The last thing, which I think is something that we should really think about, is Christ's covenantal union with us is not just redemptive work, but it's personal work. It's personal. God chose this way of redemption not simply because it seemed neat or it was interesting to him. Or this was just the way he did it? No one knows why. There is a direct uh, imaging that's going on in covenantal work when you understand a triune God. Everything God does is personal. And how is it that God is personal with us? Westminster Confession 7.1, right? He chose to condescend to us through covenant. We stop taking that seriously. We see an impersonal God much like the unsaved people see. This covenantal relation is how he is personal with us. That's what makes this idea of covenant so important to us. Um, 
I know that there are a few radio stations that are playing Christmas music right now, and that might be annoying to you. But have you ever noticed why it is that people love Christmas so much, whether you're saved or unsaved? Everyone loves Christmas. Because if you listen to those songs that they sing, um, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And they start describing these things. And what it always comes down to is people coming together in fellowship of love in a way that isn't normal. It's not the usual way. Everyone's getting along. There's a warm fire. People are sharing food. People are talking. There's this warmth of fellowship. I am telling you that is covenantal inside people to want. It is what makes us look forward to heaven, even the unsaved people who still live covenantally, but they want their own covenant. They want heaven here on earth in their terms, their way, but it doesn't stop them from wanting heaven. And they'll never have it. That's what makes, um, there's lots of things that makes hell so horrible, but it will never be like what we want what you're made to want. And that's that covenantal, personal relation. Not just with others, but with others because of what you have with your Lord God. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for being a father to us in a personal way, uh, loving us through the work of your Son and uh, enlightening us through the work of your Spirit all of which is connected to the covenantal work you've done for us. We pray for uh, a good day of worshiping you today. Pray for Andrew as he brings the word that your words will come from his mouth. Our hearts will bow before it. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.